Good morning, everybody. I'm so glad to be with you. I hate it that Albert runs out of town every time I come. Think about that one, huh? What's that say to you? But I'm really glad to be with you. If you have a bulletin, it has the wrong verse in it for us to read this morning. So I'm going to tell you what to turn to. If you'd like to read with me as I read the scriptures to you here, it's in the Old Testament and on the Bibles in front of you, in the pews in front of you is page 151. It's Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Page 151 in those Bibles that are in front of you. Deuteronomy chapter 6. But let me uh, introduce this passage this way. There was a man who came to Jesus. He was a lawyer. And he asked Jesus one time, he said, Jesus, out of all the things that are in the Bible, what's the most important? What's the greatest commandment of all? That's a big question, isn't it? When you think about how big the Bible is, how do you pick one? Well, this is what Jesus said to him. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus said that to that lawyer that day, he was actually quoting the passage we're about to read. And it's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So now we're going to take a look and see what it is that Jesus quoted and why that should be important to us. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning at verse 4. Hear the word of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we bless you and thank you so much for telling us that these words we just read are the greatest commandment in all of the Bible. We come to you now, Lord Jesus, because we call no one our teacher but you. We love no one like we love you. We depend on no one like we depend on you. We want to see no one like we want to see you. And so we turn to you and ask you to send Holy Spirit to us. May he come and may Holy Spirit fill every heart in this room so that we may see the truth that you will give us, that we may hear you speak, and that we may serve you and love you more faithfully because of what you say. And as you do that, we will bless you and we will give you the praise for it. Amen. I remember once on some of my trips that I've taken to Africa, getting up in the morning um, and walking past a pool of water that I had seen the day before. And I was up early, jet lagged and that kind of thing, and just, could, just wandering around, not paying much attention, but walked up to this little pool of water. But in this pool of water, there were three young men digging away right in the water, shoveling out mud and just digging as fast and as hard as they can. And the older man was standing next to them. I guess he was their father or the boss anyway. So I went up and started talking to him. And I said, 
why are you digging in this pool of water? You've got plenty of water here. I mean, it's getting all muddy and everything. Why are you doing this? He said, well, because this is why. There's a rock that's been blocking the spring that was feeding this pool of water. And he said, last year, we didn't get rid of that rock. And as a result, when the dry season came, we had no water. This year, we're going to have water. And we're going to dig until the water just pours out of that hole. Well, you can understand what he was saying. He was saying, look, if you're going to have enough water in a well, if, you want, if this is what you're living out of, then you've got to have a well that goes deep enough to get to the source of things. And when you do that, then the water's going to overflow like it did a couple of days later. They dug for several days to get this big stone that was blocking the spring out. And when they did, the water was just flowing everywhere. And so during the dry season, they had enough I assume I wasn't there, but I assume they had enough then to live off of. A lot of you maybe grew up, maybe you've heard the little children's song, Deep and Wide. And that little children's song, Deep and Wide, remember that one? Deep and Wide. Can you sing it? There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. Yeah, good. And that song is about God's love for his people, how deep it is, how wide it is, how deep it goes down, and then how much it overflows into every area of life, every place you can imagine, because a deep well will do that. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about deep and wide love, but we're not going to talk about so much God's love for us, but we're going to talk about our love for God being deep and being wide. Now, I was here about three months ago. Is anybody here when I was here three months ago? Yeah, we had one person. It's okay. I don't expect to remember anything I said anyway. But we actually looked at that passage where Jesus says, this is the greatest of the commandments. And I just want to tell you something about it that's real important because when we say to each other that the greatest commandment that Jesus believed was in the whole of the Bible is that we should love God. That's a weird thing to say unless you lived in the days of Jesus because in the days of Jesus, they understood love in ways that we don't understand it anymore. When we say love now and we talk about it all the time, what we basically mean in a pagan America today is giving pleasure to people, receiving pleasure from people, and when we do that, then we're in love. But that's not the way they thought about it in the days of the Bible. It's not the way Jesus thought about it either. In the days of the Bible, both in Jesus' day and back here in Moses' day in Deuteronomy, love was a word that politicians used. Can you believe that? It'd be like the president of the United States coming on television and saying, there's nothing more important to me than for you to love me. And we go, what? What are you even talking about? Love you? I'm never going to love you. Are you crazy? Because I'm not going to give you pleasure and I'm not going to receive pleasure from you. But when kings used to say that in the ancient world of the Bible, this is what they meant. I want you to think about what I have done for you. And I want you to realize how many good things I've given to you. And then I want you to devote yourself to me with loyalty, with loving devotion. A little more like what a lot of us can imagine anyway, 
was true of our grandparents and our great-grandparents. You know, back in the old days when a husband and wife would get married and they stayed married. And the reason that they stayed married was because the love they had for each other was not, I give you pleasure, you give me pleasure, because you know that lasts about a week. Say amen, somebody? Yeah, that's right. But rather, the love between the husband and wife generations ago, even in our own country here, was about loyalty to each other, devotion to each other, commitment to each other. And boy, do we need to get back to that. That wasn't worth another amen. So when God tells us that the greatest commandment of all in the Bible is to love God, then what he's talking about here is loving loyalty, loving devotion, appreciation, affection that's deep down and then spreads out wide throughout your life. And that's exactly what Moses was talking about in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Do you remember what it says in verse 4? It's a famous verse. If you've ever heard much about the book of Deuteronomy, then you've heard this one. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, that doesn't make much sense to us, except this way. In those days, the way they thought about gods was this. You got a God that does this, and you got a God that does that. You got a God that lives over there. You got a God that lives over there. And when this happens in your life, then that God did it. When this happens in your life, then that God did it. And if you were over there when it happened, then that God did it. So you better pay attention to them all. It's a lot like if you go to India today. You'll see gods everywhere. Because people think that every single different aspect of their lives belongs to a different God. And so they try to worship them all and they try to appeal to them all and get all of their favor. But here, Moses is saying to Israel, Israel, the Lord our God is, is only one of them. And on the basis of that, he says, you shall love the Lord your God exclusively with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. I don't know about you, but when I hear I'm supposed to love God with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my strength, I kind of go, wow, that's a lot. And you can understand what is being said here. It's not that he's chopping us up into different pieces and saying, now be sure you love God with this part of you and that part of you and that part of you. Instead, it's kind of a piling on because basically when Moses says, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, what he's talking about is you need to love God from deep down. Just like those people who are digging that well and trying to get that big stone out of the way of that spring, you've got to dig deep if you want to have the kind of loving devotion and loving loyalty that God wants you to have. It's got to come from deep down inside of you. It can't be superficial. It can't be something that comes and goes with the wind. It can't be something that you get around to every once in a while. It's got to be from deep within. And how deep, how consuming? All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I know that may, all this stuff may sound pretty strange. You know, Why would anybody ever be that much in love with God? Why would anybody ever 
give everything they've got deep down inside, their whole soul, their whole heart, their whole strength in love to God and devotion and loyalty to him. Well, I can tell you, it's really not that hard to understand if you can just go with us for a step or two. You see, because Christian people, they've become convinced of something. And that is that every good thing in their lives, every single one of them, comes from God. Now, if you don't know that that's true about you, because it's true of everybody, whether you recognize it or not, but if you don't know it's true of you, there is a step you can take. And the step is to come to the one who told us this is the most important part of the Bible, the greatest commandment. Come to Jesus. And when you come to Jesus, even if you don't understand all these things at first, when you come to him, he changes you. And all of a sudden, your eyes start opening up to being able to see that every good thing that happens in your life comes from God. And when that is seated deep in your soul. Then you discover suddenly this loyal love for God rising up. Think about the situation that Moses was dealing with here as he actually first said these words to the ancient people of Israel. Who were these people? Well, the first thing about these people was this. They were different from everybody else on planet Earth. I mean, I know today when you watch the news, you look at the news and you go, man, the world is messed up. Well, the world is messed up in their day, too. If you think the world today is violent, you should have lived back in those days. If you think that everybody's life was on edge, you should live back in those days. If you believe that today that people wander around aimlessly, not knowing why in the world they live, and those that have purposes in life have the craziest purposes in life. If you think that's true today, then you should go back to the days of Moses and Israel when they were the only people on the earth who knew the true creator and that every other nation and every individual and every other nation everywhere around them was devoted to all kinds of things other than the truth and the true God of heaven and earth. They were tyrannized. They were enslaved. They barely eked out existence. They were themselves warring constantly or in fear of war constantly. They would die of the flu you get a cold, you get a toothache, and you die. This is the kind of life the whole world was facing at this time when Moses lived. And he looks at Israel and he says, you are different. And the reason you're different is because God has loved you. Think about the sorts of things that had happened to Israel. Out of all the human race, their patriarch, their father, Abraham, was chosen. Not because he was a good guy. Not because he had a lot to offer. 
not because he was smarter than everybody or more prominent than anybody. It's purely because God loved him. And because God loved him, he loved those that came from him. And even when they went into Egypt, he didn't forget them. While they were under the tyranny of Pharaoh and under the tyranny of the gods of Egypt, God stepped in and God delivered them. And understand that the Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt had no hope whatsoever of ever being able to escape on their own. They knew that they were absolutely helpless when they were in Egypt. Helpless to change their lives, helpless to make anything good out of life. They knew that the only reason they were able to be free from Pharaoh and from the false gods of Egypt was because God had come and delivered them. You've seen the movie. As they wandered through the wilderness, it became evident to them every single day that even daily life, even in the daily existence they had, they were absolutely helpless to sustain themselves, to keep going, to make anything good. In America, we have a sort of twist on something that actually came from our Christian background. A lot of you will know that Bible verse that says, I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. You heard that one before? Well, what happened in our country early on was Christians believed that and they had this attitude of we can do all things in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can get out there and we can do things for the kingdom of God. But as our country became more and more secular, as religion became less and less important, we can do all things in Christ changed into we can. It's that American can-do attitude. Now, I like that American can-do attitude if we can keep from being just too proud of ourselves and too self-confident because at least it gets us up in the morning and we think maybe I can do something with my life. And I've been to parts of the world where people are just absolutely convinced they can do nothing with their lives. That they're victims 100%, that they'll never be anything but a victim, and if they can just avoid pain, then they've succeeded in life. A lot of people in the world are like that. But we have this sort of can-do attitude, this sort of secular version of, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And as good as that is, as helpful as it is in life to know, if I work hard, I can get some things done here. As good as that is, it is one of the biggest obstacles you and I face to being people who love God with everything we've got. It's the greatest deception that you could possibly believe that when you get up on Monday morning, that what happens on Monday depends on you. I can do it. The reality is, no, you can't. Do I have to remind you that every breath you take is given to you? Do I have to remind you that every beat of your heart is given to you? That every time those neurosynapses fire up there in your brain, and I know they're slowing down as you get older, mine are too, but every time they work, it's being given to you. You have no control over those things. 
And the same is true even in the areas of life where you think you do have control because without those, you can do nothing. You see, there's a real sense in which you and I living every day of our lives, we are as helpless as those Israelites were who heard Moses say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one who has made all of this possible. Only one. When you look at your past as a follower of Jesus, you ought to be able to see that plainly. Because here you are, a follower of Christ, someone who has been saved from sin, someone who is precious to God. And why did that happen? Because of something you did? Not at all. You were absolutely helpless. At a time when the world was in one of its darkest periods, God sent his son. And God's son died on a cross voluntarily. And he was raised from the dead. And he now sits in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. What did you have to do with that? Nothing. So for all the can-do, for all the self-esteem we try to teach our children to have, and it's important in the right way, it's important to do that. There is a bottom line here, and that is there is only one who has made your life what it is today. So that every good and perfect gift that is in your life has come from God, and you are absolutely helpless. When you begin to realize just how helpless you are and how much God has done for you in the past, then love will begin to grow in your heart for him. I have a friend who came down with a very serious case of hepatitis C. He got it, a very rare case, a very strange little strain of it, and they didn't know what to do about it at first, and he got it from using dope, and he came down with it. And he lost about 40 pounds. And I saw him after he'd gone through the chemo and all those kinds of things. He'd come out. And I, I, you know, I'm just trying to make conversation with him. And I said, tell me what you've learned. What's the biggest thing you've learned? And I thought he'd say something like, oh, you know, how wonderful it is to be alive or something like that. You know, but he didn't. He said, I can tell you exactly what the most important thing that I learned through all of this. And he looked at me and he said, with a tear in his eyes, he said... I learned how much my wife loved me. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I lay on that bed for more than six weeks and I could do nothing. I couldn't feed myself. I couldn't clean myself. I couldn't sit up by myself. And she nursed me through that whole time. And not one time did she ever complain. I learned how helpless I was and how much my wife loved me. And then he said, boy, do I love her.
Will you have to go through an experience like that? To know how much love has been shown to you? How helpless you are? And how much God in Christ has done for you? So that you will be able to say, Oh, how I love him. But you know, it's not just the past. In the book of Deuteronomy, later on in this chapter, Moses looks at Israel and he says, let me tell you, you should love God because you're so, you've been so helpless and he's done so much for you. But let me tell you why, another reason why you should love God. It's because of the future. I'm taking you to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be great over there, except that it's full of enemies that are invincible. And you have no hope of anything good coming in your future unless God himself gives it to you. You know, I thought, I was so naive, I thought that if ever I got to the point where my daughter married a Christian man, then I wouldn't have to have faith for her anymore. Well, she did. Has three lovely children, and then all of a sudden, I'm required to have faith again. Crazy grandchildren. Do you understand how much your future, all your hopes and all your dreams depend on God showing you mercy? And how helpless you are to control your future? In the mundane, the silly things of life, your health, even, even your eternal salvation is not in your hands. Your future is all in his hands. You want to know why you should love God with all your heart? Dig deep down inside all your soul, all of your strength. How that kind of love can be your love for God. It's to know how helpless you have been in the past and how helpless you are for the future. There was a church in the first century in the city of Ephesus. And it's one of those churches that the first chapters of the book of Revelation actually have letters from Jesus. He's basically writing letters to them. And he talks to the people of Ephesus and he says, you know, you guys are great. You're just doing great. You got the right doctrine. You love the Bible. You're not following false teachers. Way to go. You're also great in this way, you know, out of all the churches I'm writing to, you're probably the most moral church I know of. You know, you got your, you got your priorities straightened out when it comes to doing the right thing. For me, and this is just the truth, sounds a lot like your church. Unlike many churches here in this city, you love the Bible. You want to know the truth. And you hold on to it. And unlike many churches in this city, you've got love for other people 
You've got programs and concerns and goals that are admirable. And so, you know, in many ways, you are like that church of Ephesus. Way to go. But Jesus looked at that church and he said one thing. He said, I got a problem and we need to talk about it for a minute here. And he said this, you've lost your first love. You know the right stuff. You're doing the right stuff, but you've lost your first love. Now, you know what that means. If you've ever been in love, you know what it's like when you first fall in love with someone. They are everything. They're everything to you. Nothing's more important than that person that you love when you first love them. Give it a few weeks, things kind of go dull. Actually, it's about 18 months and things go real dull. It's biology, by the way. But you know what it means to be so captivated and so appreciative and so concerned and so devoted and so overwhelmed by that other person when you have first love. You know what that's like. That's what Jesus says is the greatest commandment of all. Know your helplessness in the past. Know your helplessness in the future. Know that every good thing that you have, and they are many, come from the hand of God. Have first love. Be enamored with him. Be amazed at him. Be preoccupied with him. Want nothing more than to honor him. But you remember what that African elder said to me when I asked him, why are you digging in this pool of water and messing it all up and getting it muddy? He said, because we've got to have it deep. And we're going to keep digging until we open the spring up enough that it overflows, that it goes everywhere. Because only then will we have water during the dry season. And that's exactly what Moses goes on to say in this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Take a look again, beginning with verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, and bind them as a sign on your hand and on your forehead, and you'll write them on the doorposts and the gates. What's he saying to them? Look, if you've got this deep well of love, if you know how helpless you've been and how helpless you are in the future, and this causes you to have first love for God, then something's going to happen. And it's this, the water of love is going to overflow everywhere in your life. You're not going to be able to keep it down. You're not going to be able to restrain it. You're not going to be able to just keep it in some safe area of your life. It's going to be something that overflows into every area of your life. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but in America today, it's, it's respectable to be a spiritual person. Have you noticed that? It's respectable, in fact, even to be a sort of a traditional spiritual person. That is, to go to church. You can even do that. That's okay with people. 
It's okay to be a person of prayer. It's, a pers- it's okay. It's acceptable, even in high society, to be a spiritual person. So long as you keep it to yourself. Because for us today, religion is only safe when it's kept private. And in fact, in a day when religious terrorism is obviously a threat to all of Western society, it is not a particular religious belief that is the cause of this from the world's point of view. The problem is not that religion. The problem from the world's point of view is they won't keep it to themselves. They can be spiritual in that way, but don't talk and don't try to change the world. Don't let it overflow into other things, which should let you know what they think of you. Because as soon as your religion overflows into your life, like Moses describes it here, so that you can't get it off of your mind no matter what you're doing at the office, at your house, walking down the street, going to court, going to the grocery store. When your religion is that important to you, now you're messing with other people's lives. And you, Christian, are the potential terrorist just like anyone of any other religion. You're the dangerous one because your religion is affecting your practice. We can't have that anymore. Have you seen it? It's not a particular religion in their view that gives rise to terrorism. It's religion that gives rise to terrorism unless you put it in a box and keep it private. Well, in a world like that, guess what you and I do? We put it in a box. and keep it private because to do otherwise is to cause trouble in your life. I hate to get my hair cut in Orlando where I live. I hate it. You know why? It's because I can't find a manly barbershop in all of Orlando. Now, ladies, you may not know what a manly barbershop is. Uh, So let me describe it to you. It's where only men go and where men go and do manly things. And you know how your husbands don't like to talk to you at at your house? You know how they they don't like to talk much? You know, turn on the TV and uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Or now what I do is I hit the pause button. Okay, yeah, what do you want to say? Great, back on. You know how they don't want to talk at home? Well, they don't want to talk at the barbershop either. And you can do that. It's great because they don't want to talk to you either. So you just go in and say, give me the regular. They cut your hair and you pay them and you go. See you next week. But that's not the way it is in these unisex places. And I hate it. Okay, because those people are trained to talk to you. They look at that little ticket that they produce and they say, well, well, Richard, how are you today? And you know what's coming. Within one or two minutes, you know the questions are going to be asked. Well, Richard, what do you do? I'm a teacher. You're what? I'm a teacher. 
What do you teach? You teach religion. What do you, you teach religion? Are you a rabbi? The beard, I guess. Well, and if I say no, which I usually do, then they say, well, then are you a priest? They don't know what an evangelical Protestant Christian is in my part of Orlando, okay? Now, here's the problem. Very often, because the people that work in this particular place change, you know, they rotate around a lot and you get different people all the time. It's a new person. So very often, before my hair is done, I'm having to talk about what I believe. And that's the last thing I want to do. You believe in the Bible? You think that Jesus is the only way of salvation? One time, the woman that was sweeping up the hair, you know that person? Low person on the totem pole, the hair sweeper. She was standing behind me while everybody was gathered around me hearing this kooky old man talk about this ridiculous stuff. She was standing behind me doing this. Like that. I wanted so much to tell her, I can see you in the mirror. I didn't. I let her off the hook. But, you know, I hate that because... I know what the world thinks of religious people. You're a kook. I know what they think about these fanatics like you and me. And so what I want to do is just go there and get my hair cut. I want them to like me and respect me and think I'm a great guy. I guess the worst part of it is that when they find out you're a Christian, you have to leave a really big tip. But I do. Don't you feel that way sometimes? That you just kind of like to box up your religion? Keep it to yourself? What Moses is saying here is that if you have love for God that comes from deep down, you can't keep it to yourself anymore. You and I are the kinds of people who must... Come to grips with the fact that Jesus said, this is the most important commandment in the whole of the Bible. And that all the law and all the prophets hang on these words. Our love for God must go very deep down inside because we know how much we need him and how good he has been to us. And that deep love will overflow so that you can't put it in a box and hide it anymore. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we adore you and we love you. We thank you so much for helping us see what undergirds all the teaching of Scripture because we would never have found this verse apart from you. We bless you and we thank you. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will change us and empower us with the same power you used to resurrect Jesus from the dead. Help us to walk in newness of life. And we will thank you. Amen.